0: Today I'm speaking with Kelly Horn uh, from Pacific Rim Shipbrokers. And uh, hello, Kelly. Hi, Ron. great to be here. Well, I'm, I'm happy to speak with you today. I was hoping you could give us a little background about your experience in the shipping industry.
1: Absolutely. So my name is Kelly Horn. I'm with Pacific Rim Shipbrokers. We're a dry bulk ship brokerage out in the Pacific Northwest in the Seattle area. We're on a small island called Bainbridge. The company was started in 1984 and we purchased it from the original owners in 2016, two other employees and I really loved what we did. We loved working together and we decided just because they were retiring, we could want uh, Pac Rim to stop and um, just. Sort of anecdotally, we're the only all-women-owned ship brokerage firm in the United States, as far as we know, especially within dry bulk. Um, So That's a little feather in our cap. And then we also do some work with the government where we actually do charter vessels. But primarily, our bread and butter is in dry bulk and in uh, brokerage of the minor bulks, geared vessels primarily, although we do have some uh, Panamax business as well and I've been in the industry since 2001, so I've seen some real big highs and lows, and one of the greatest things about uh, dry bulk and shipping in general is it's never dull. I
0: I would second that. Uh, Can you explain a little bit about minor bulk versus major bulk, and what exactly those terms mean?
1: Sure, so the minor bulks tend to be everything outside of grain, coal, and iron ore uh the major bulks are those three and they tend to be on the larger vessels where you're seeing the capes baby capes and uh, cancer masses and panamasses as well but the major bulks they are a very unique industry especially i would say iron ore in particular where they have fewer ports that they're calling these very large vessels can only go in and out of certain ports and although it does especially the capes, pull our indices, which is called the BDI or the Baltic Dry Index. It, it pulls our indexes around, but really the minor bulks, everything else that you can imagine that's dry from lintels to scrap metal, are the day-in, day-out sort of venerable cargos that are pushed around the planet. They go into almost everything that we use.
0: Certainly. So, <laughs> You you mentioned geared uh, bulkers in there. Uh, what exactly differentiates a, a geared uh, vessel?
1: Right. So when you're looking at a vessel, if you happen to notice one uh, out in the port near you, you might see one that's very flat and long, and it has the house, as we call it, where the crew stays in the back. And there is nothing else in there. There's big the holds that open up, hatches that open up, and cargo is poured in using only shore equipment. And a geared vessel, you would see the same sort of shape of the vessel, but it will have cranes on it, uh, typically four cranes or more, depending on the size of the vessel. We are down to two, and those cranes are able to assist in the loading and discharging of the cargo. They aren't always used, but that's where it's really beneficial for those smaller ports or ports that don't have the infrastructure or the gear to discharge and load cargo. So you might put a big clamshell on and you're scooping out grain and putting it into direct hits into trucks, or you're putting a big um, shovel on it to uh, load scrap metal off of the deck.
0: Okay. Now I understand in starting in 2021, there was a connection between container ship markets and and specifically geared bulkers. Uh, I was curious if you could uh, speak a little bit about that.
1: Sure, that was a very, very unusual situation. Typically bulkers in almost all the contracts will say specifically uh, no containers, or maybe they might allow on a special occasion a couple of containers on deck after the bulk cargo is loaded. Well, when containers got up to twenty-five, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 containers, suddenly bulkers and the fact that they had gear and they could load said containers became in a viable option for those looking to get their containerized cargo. Uh, It is not without some complications. All of those uh, owners who did decide that they would try and break into that market, had to have class come and all kinds of things to happen to make sure the trim and stability of the vessel could be maintained. But those cranes proved uh, quite important in being able to load and discharge the containers they were going into the ports because a typical uh, container crane was not going to be as easily manipulated into the smaller ships and non-container vessels or panamaxes and um, that was a a real gold mine for a lot of the minor bulkers when maybe not necessarily as much steel or scrap or iron ore or other things that are used in the manufacturing of steels, and when China really slowed down, this ability to pivot and be able to load containers really provided uh, quite a windfall for a lot of the minor bulkers.
0: Now, I understand that recently this has kind of disappeared from the market. These spillover cargoes, um, I believe, with poor congestion and, and China uh, kind of clearing up. Uh, would you agree that that's kind of finished now, or do you expect that that might happen again in the future?
1: I, I think it's finished now for two reasons. One, because the congestion is is often container ships are once again having um, deep discounts into their rates for the containers. The only ones you'll see are the ones that are contractually obligated. We are still seeing some, especially coming into the U.S. West Coast from Asia into Everett and uh, LA and Long Beach, but they're pretty few and far between. And uh, the other reason I would say we probably won't see it in the future is one thing that we always look at is the order book. So we're always looking at the horizon to see how many new ships are coming in in whatever sector and for the foreseeable future, the main glut coming out of the shipyards are container ships. So we don't see this uh, supply and demand issue being in play again in the near future. However, nobody saw COVID and saw the poor congestion coming. Maybe perhaps the zero COVID policy or something else similar to this came up. We would see that kind of pressure on the container market again, but they are definitely uh, upending their supply issues that they had by having all these new builds rolling out.
0: Certainly. Now, kind of switching over to what's going on around the world, of course, um, geopolitical tensions are high with the conflict in Ukraine. And one of the big stories for dry bulk has been uh, the shifts in ton mile uh, demand. And I'm I'm curious with minor bulks, if you've seen any impact uh, from the conflict in Ukraine?
1: Initially, yes. I'd say almost immediately we were seeing... a lot of strange routes coming up popping up, so for example, we have a client who produces soda ash in Bulgaria, and they were suddenly needing to move coal from Colombia, and what would that look like, and what would their rates be and and trying to plan forward because they needed it to run there their factories. We also had some interesting inquiries for agripods going into Kazakhstan. So that was creating a real issue because of all the intermodal. They were considering going into the Black Sea if we could get a, an owner to go there or into China. So I would say what we saw was a very little cargo going into West Africa, which was a very a lot of fertilizers and grains out of Ukraine and Russia going to West Africa and some very different routes than we had seen previously coming out of the Americas. Because of the time of year that the conflict began, that wasn't really affecting the U.S. agricultural market as much being in the spring, right? because our seasons happen later. Yeah. Definitely, uh, we were seeing more cargoes moving out of East Coast, South America, in then grains into uh, West Africa and to Asia, where maybe they would have been purchasing out of the Black Sea. We also saw where minor bulkers who were willing to go there were making three times the market value of the vessel.
0: Oh, it so right.
1: Yes. And that is still, actually, I would say that's just recently backed off. So let's say a supermax is worth. it's open in the East uh, Mediterranean <coughs> is worth $17,000 a day on the market, if willing to call the Black Sea, they would be seeing $35,000 to $40,000 a day for that same vessel.
0: Wow. That's that's an impressive jump.
1: (laughs) Yes. So those uh, willing and their clubs and insurers that were willing to allow them to do that were able to to, uh, benefit from that situation. But there were many owners that initially said uh, and continue to say, no, we're not going to. Call
0: the box for now. Yeah, I, I can understand with uh, insurance concerns. It's it's uh, an extremely difficult situation.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I think we... as, now that it's opened up a little bit and more ships have come in and out, the, the appetite for that risk is growing.
0: Well, initially with, with grain, uh, one of my questions for you was if the U.S. Gulf, and this is a more recent situation with the Mississippi River, the low water levels, which is delaying grain cargoes from being able to make it down, uh, down river. Uh, very first, um, I'm curious uh, what effects you've seen from the uh, barge delays on the Mississippi.
1: Sure. So a lot of those grain cargoes, especially on the larger vessels, the Panamaxes, the masses, those are on COAs as well as many others in the minor uh, sizes. And, in the Supras and Ultras and even down to the handings. Uh, so the risk is really on the ship owner and the terminal in those cases. We saw a lot of force majeure hits so uh, that's a, you know, a a lever within all contracts that there's things that are out of your control to, to basically say we can't perform either the Suppliers say they can't perform, or the charters who chartered the boats say they can't perform because the green can't get there. Uh, or more likely, and I think more of what we saw, is that commercial understanding began to happen after all the forced shores started being mined. So there is still cargo moving, it's moving a lot more slowly, and the barges are short loaded. Uh, and so that's really on the grain houses who are going to be absorbing most of those costs and the vessel owners who are sitting there if force majeure is called and they've been sitting there let's say 10 days waiting for cargo and the charter say that you know, this is out of our control and we're not going to pay the demurrage for the vessel sitting there so i i think that um probably some lawyers are going to make some money off of this but i do There was a little bit of hysteria initially, and it seems like it's calmed down, which tells me that a lot of commercial decisions were made and negotiated behind the scenes to help everybody get through this. And the rains are coming, and I think that it's improving as well on the river. Interesting. However, that did push the Chinese and other Asian countries more towards East Coast, South America as a supplier And that's true with the Black Sea as well, because they're looking for more stability and reliability. So the issues that we had with the river and congestion and the issues with the conflict in the Black Sea, that has, and what really started with the Trump era trade wars sort of pushed those relationships down to South America, out of Asia. So I would say, you know, as much as they can produce, uh, Asia is willing to purchase.
0: Interesting. Yeah,
1: it's been a little. It's been a more stable market for those receivers. So, those buyers.
0: what is it about stability versus the quality of the grain, or what the buyer specifically is looking for? Uh, why is that favored specifically?
1: Well, the quality will always come into play, especially with soybeans, with the beans market and the protein. Well, we're all agropods. There's protein levels. There's all kinds of things that folks are looking for when they're yeah. milling or crushing. The Argentinians and the Brazilians have come a long way in improving all of those levels and are getting closer and closer to Black Sea and U.S. Gulf uh, levels of quality. And every time something like this, some disruption happens, as you all know, and people in these industries, says, it takes a long time to build a relationship between the supplier and the receiver. And it takes them very little time to kind of unspool those relationships, unfortunately. And once they start purchasing from someone else and and have a relationship that they're developing with another country or entity or supplier, it's really hard to to claw that back. Now, there are things that are very specific and you can only get out of certain markets because it's grown in certain places. Ag is, is unique in that way. But I would say if... If the protein levels are close, if the quality is close, and it's a lot more reliable and less expensive, both in the commodity as well as the freight, then obviously the receivers, the buyers, are going to are gonna head that direction, which for the last few years has definitely been um, South America, East Coast South America.
0: Interesting. One of the commodities I've seen that has really exploded uh, in comparison to uh, past exports out of Brazil has been uh, unmilled rice to Mexico. I was, I was curious if you had uh, heard about this. Um, I believe there was a situation where the Mexican government had... Uh, waived some kind of uh, import tariffs, and this allowed, uh, let's see, Mexican importers to switch from U.S. Gulf uh, rice to Brazilian in Argentina uh, as well. And I think the, the numbers are just um, astronomically higher than what uh, in the past these countries had exported. Uh, I'm curious if you think we'll see more of Argentina, more of Brazil kind of branching out into other markets and taking more market share in the future
1: definitely believe that's the intention, and they have the ability to grow all these crops, so I'm not as familiar with the milled rice, just to give full disclosure, although I have moved cargoes of rice for years out of uh, the U.S. Gulf into Mexico, and I will say that we've seen people try and have it make sense to even prior to the conflict bring in grains from the Black Sea because the grains themselves are less expensive but the freight kills it and I would imagine that at some point that would be the same case with the with the milled rice uh into Mexico it's a three-day duration from uh, the Mississippi River into Veracruz, Topico the places you know three or four days where that uh where those receivers are so perhaps they are um, in order to get in having a very you know having a, a, a good sale on their milled rice coming in but I don't see any reason why Argentina and Brazil would not be uh, trying to break into two additional agricultural markets they started really strongly with soybeans and corn and and now milled rice so uh, I it makes sense to me that they would try for some of those markets then the I would say coming back into Mexico that kind of surprises me going to Asia it would make sense interesting Not that they're really purchasing a lot of milk rice it would be mostly for the Americas so yeah an interesting uh, development
0: yeah this, um, I, I was surprised to see it uh, I was surprised to see uh, I, I never considered that uh, Mexico has a uh, a lot of uh, rice mills apparently so that's uh, uh an interesting uh, aspect to it, but uh, yeah.
1: Well, in Mexico, like they also import a lot of corn for uh, not for tortillas. They use their domestic corn, and they are a big exporter of white corn out of hmm. Mexico, uh, especially West Coast Mexico. And they import yellow corn from the states primarily for industrial baking, for Corona beer, for an industrial starch. So they bring in a lot of corn and rice out of the uh, states but they're used in different ways but they are a big miller
0: for sure interesting interesting yeah uh, I, I never knew uh this uh grain industry specifically was a big part of my uh one of my favorite beers so that's that's exciting yeah to hear. there you go
1: Right.
0: So, <laughs> so enjoy that corona just think about u.s corn going down there <laughs> that's exciting stuff huh? but uh, now, with the uh, Panama Canal, I know that recently the wait times for uh, Neo-Panamax uh, logs have, have really jumped up. I'm curious if you've seen this affecting the, the Cancer Max, uh market, uh, the larger uh, Panamax, uh, maybe carrying grain out of the U.S. Gulf. Yeah, I don't
1: know if it would definitely – the thing with some of this stuff is a little bit more slow-moving. I don't think it's so much about demand, but more about how – owners would be contemplating forward and spot cargos and how they would be rated so as much as we try to look in a crystal ball constantly when we're looking at forward rates and that means if someone says okay i need eight cargos of a cancer box of corn out of the u.s gulf into asia to japan let's say um what would that rate be so if you look at what's happening now you look at what's happening typically and seeing any kinds of delays in the Panama Canal, I would say everyone at minimum always adds three days on either side of the, calling the canal. And when you see something like 14, 10, all these other days, or having an auction for a slip, then you're going to increase that, especially for anything that's happening fourth quarter or first quarter of 2023. Definitely for spot. So I don't know, maybe it would change demand and then it would make it too expensive, and then the receivers would pivot to East Coast, South America. Uh, But most of those that are moving are on long term contracts. So it's just a risk that is borne by the owner. Sure. And then thought about after they felt that pain the next time they go to rate the business, if that makes sense.
0: Absolutely. Well, with the Extended wait times with the U.S. Gulf, and then the the fees to use the canal uh, in the first place. What would motivate, uh, let's say, an Asia Pacific uh, buyer of grain to choose the U.S. Gulf over the North Pacific, uh, maybe you know, closer to your uh, your office there? Uh,
1: typically, the commodity is less expensive coming out of the Gulf. Also, so for the grains, primarily the wheat that comes out of the no-pack is a completely different kind of wheat. It's um, soft or hard white, and that is preferred in milling of Asian products, of uh, noodles and lighter pastries and things that need a lighter color. And the rail to get it, even though the P&W is notorious, the Columbia River, for being very, very extensive, which it is, the rail to get it and the commodity coming this direction from where that's grown, which is primarily in the P&W and maybe out to uh, Idaho-ish, it's a specialized cargo. So that's always coming out of here. It doesn't make any sense to send it into the Gulf. Um, The Gulf also still do have quite excellent agricultural products, and things that um, the wheat that's coming out of the U.S. Gulf is still desired around the planet. So it's not like it's going to be replaced anytime soon. But usually the cost that people are looking at, it's more about the type that's coming out of the PNW. However we have seen some rail disruption because of the barging issue in the mississippi where some uh ag is being tried to be railed to the Nopac to have it come out of here and i i haven't seen a lot of it uh i think those were more initial urgent demands it seems like it's been tapered off but i know that our rail for copper concentrates and soda ash uh were delayed due to the rail companies because the ag people were willing to pay a higher price to move uh, their cargo that they couldn't get onto barges via rail and into the NOPAC. Interesting. Or down into um, Texas and and different ports in, in the New Orleans until louisiana that they couldn't do on barges so it was a it was a scramble to try and get because the other thing that you have to remember too when there's this kind of place right agricultural products they get rolled they can they only have a certain amount of shelf life and if they had to get them uh moving or get them off of barges into rail and et etc before it was a total loss
0: right right
1: so but traditionally in a normal market the u.s Gulf has its uh the red, hard hard red, hard winter weeds, the red weeds that come through there. And then the no-pack is the white weeds. I mean, it's it's a little bit more, we can get really into weeds, but that's sort of a simple way to look at it. Sure. And then certain soybeans come out through here too. So the soybeans that are grown in uh, North Dakota come through here, through the Pacific Northwest versus through the Gulf. And that's just a intermodal uh
0: uh, cost savings. Well, to go back uh, just just a little bit to what you talked about with the U.S. grains out of out of Nopac for the North Pacific. Uh, I, I remember seeing a few fixtures maybe a couple of weeks ago that I I think were exactly that. Uh, they were listed as North Pacific uh, fixtures for for U.S. Uh, Gulf grain, and I uh, I couldn't really wrap my head around that, but I think I got a clearer <laughs> picture now. Yes, exactly. I'm oh, very good. Yeah.
1: Cool.
0: Well, we've spoken uh, quite a bit about grain. I'm, I'm curious uh, with the minor bulks have you've seen any changes in thermal fuels uh, instead, of something like maybe pet coke or or Curson?
1: Yeah, we've seen a big increase off of, especially off the U.S. West Coast into the Asia markets of pet coke. I, I would say um, I, I'd be interested to, to run a report to see just how much, but it feels like that is a a consistently growing market, uh, and I think that if there was a lot of pet coke that wasn't. Is, I think it's also due to the conflict that it's being absorbed out of the West Coast by Asia, so they're looking for other markets of pet coke to for their to run their factories.
0: Right, right.
1: Um, that's what we're and a lot going into India out of the U.S. Gulf as well. Uh, that would be on. A lot of Ultras uh, carrying Pet Coconut to India and Panamax as, as well. And I would say it's primarily handy super Ultras off of the West Coast taking Pet Coconut to Asia, but we've seen a big increase in that.
0: Interesting. And these uh Panamaxes are these the um, special geared Panamaxes I've heard about or just regular Panamaxes?
1: No, mostly just regular Panamaxes. It just depends on the ultimately the receiving port, what they can can do. And the geared Panamax is almost a little bit of a unicorn now. They were sort of in favor, but I would say no one's been building those consistently for a while so they tend to be older tonnage and unusual they were probably built and stacked for a specific project at the time and then have been sold in the second hand trade and are traded but they're usually kind of a a project boat so
0: sure sure i I like that idea of a a unicorn panamax you know (laughs) uh, interesting when you see one
1: yeah every once in a while someone we need a geared Panama, but like we do need to rethink our <laughs> program because <laughs> they're very hard to find. But the Ultramaxes just keep getting bigger. Uh, I think there's a lot of sixty-six thousand dead weight okay. maxes out there now. They can't go through the old rocks, but also you know, we were talking about I'm talking about Panama. Obviously, it doesn't make a lot of sense for like green going to Asia, but we were looking at. Uh, steals out of East Coast Brazil into the West Coast of the U.S. And wherever and whenever right now you can just uh, go around the Horn, go around Cape Horn, instead of dealing with the Panama Canal, it can actually be economical because daily hire rates have have come off probably 40% and fuel bunkers are down as well. So it's starting to have that... uh, math problem of Panama Canal, the fees to go through, the delays there versus going around, and a lot of times it's making more sense to go around. Yeah, That's probably the other way people are contemplating. Same thing with the Suez that happened. Um, It's it's really just an algebra equation to figure out which way is best. And especially now that for a while there, when ships were trading in the 30s, 40s, $50,000 a day, uh, it wouldn't it make sense, in the, and when bunker squared a thousand dollars per metric ton for very low sulfur fuel oil, but now that's all come off. So it's once again looking
0: at sailing around. Absolutely. Yeah, so that some of that with cape size, front holes uh, going through Suez, where uh, that that long voyage round actually ends up with a lower uh, dollar a ton, uh, you know. Uh, yeah. uh, right. So uh, pretty interesting stuff. I, I, I imagine there are situations where someone needs something just as soon as possible, whatever the cost, uh, which would uh, have them so running through the canals. But yeah, it, it makes sense. Yeah. Now, with the Brazilian steel, that's that's pretty interesting. It sounds like it's something that, that uh, you folks really look at. Um, have you noticed any changes in that market? I know that Chinese steel making has really dropped off. Has that been the same for these Brazilian steel cargos? Uh,
1: yes, I would say. And for for us, our, our importer is, um, uh, you know, they're they're buying it and and then doing some manufacturing to it. Um, and the domestic demand was down, so they weren't bringing it in uh, as, as frequently as they hoped. And then tariffs come into play. There's a lot of different things. But I um, I do see the, the slabs market out of Brazil consistently being being circulated. So
0: it seems to be robust. I haven't noticed the bits come off. These are coming out of Brazil. Who's, who's picking up these cargoes?
1: Great question. I only know of my <laughs> of my clients. the
0: sure,
1: uh, sure. definitely I can circle back with you.
0: Oh, absolutely. absolutely. I would,
1: would imagine if I were to go look at the orders, I'm sure a lot of it's going into Europe.
0: I suppose that would make That's sense. Huh? Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. But I was really focused on what was coming into America, and also there's um steels that come out of West coast Mexico, so they get it you know they get it in some form and then some sort of milling or manufacturing is happening to it and it and it's being exported oh. uh, or used domestically so it's not um it's it's maybe putting it into taking slabs and making it into rebar
0: that's it.
1: And actually, quite a bit of uh, steel slabs moves out of West Coast Mexico into the Gulf. That's a really consistent uh, player as well. But those would all be small, minor filters. Sure. Small stems of 30,000 tons,
0: let's say, of slabs. Oh, absolutely. What would this be uh, the handy size uh, levels, handy mix?
1: Yes. Handy, and I would say out of. Uh, out of Brazil, uh, that would be the supermass and boxes. Gotcha. But definitely geared. You have to have geared vessels to load and discharge the steels.
0: Yeah, I've seen some interesting things. I don't know if you do much with, and this, getting into minor books, this might be a minor, minor book, but uh, like <laughs> logs, uh, wood uh, logs. Uh, I've seen some very interesting YouTube videos of uh, Supermaxes, uh, maybe handymaxes, uh, loading logs straight off the, uh, you know, the the side of the port there, and uh, they built up uh, kind of a trellis around the outside of it. There's a word for it, and I can't remember where they can actually stack it up on the deck itself uh, with these cables, kind of forming a, an additional cargo hold uh, once the holds are filled. Correct. Um, but-
1: yeah, watching the log uh, logs being loaded is a pretty dramatic folk experience. Logs and scrap are <laughs> probably the two. And prior to working at Pacific yeah. so Rim Shipbrokers, I worked for a company called San Juan Navigation, and I was a commercial vessel operator, so I got to go attend all those fun loadings. Um, so, yes, the log, it's, it is a dramatic, and I'm so glad that there's YouTube videos about it. It's a pretty amazing puzzle that they do. It's It's sold as a lump sum uh cargo and it's i definitely wouldn't want to cross the north pacific on one of those ships because i have a feeling it'd be pretty rough but they do it um they do it all the time on those and uh definitely need a geared vessel for that as well that's
0: fascinating to think about a a ship that small in comparison to these these larger these these cancer maxes these cape sizes uh crossing the ocean you know it's it's
1: Right. Like I said, it's a little yeah.
0: little terrifying, but
1: <laughs> yeah. And when you see the big ones being tossed around, I mean, we love seeing the YouTube videos of all the different uh, ball crossing. It's always interesting. Absolutely. <clears throat> but we have noticed an uptick. Of, uh, so one, one sign. I mean, everybody's waiting for China, right? To turn the lights back on. Sure. Essentially, um, for the miners and, and the majors, so the iron ore that would go in, so then you're back into the major bulkers and the steel production. This is going to be the thing that everybody's really watching with China, they're always going to be bringing in ag, and they're trying to develop their own ag. Uh, but the steel production is really what pushes a dry bulk around, whether it's the coal to feed the factories, and the scrap, and the iron ore to build the steel. It's it's really a major component of what supports the entire market. So I think everyone is assuming still continued contraction or just a flat market out of China, at least through their new year, which is earlier this year, which is good. And uh, maybe some relaxing of the zero COVID policy. So I think everyone's waiting till post-Chinese new year to really see what's gonna happen then and with like fingers crossed behind their back that it will uh, loosen up the COVID policies and start booming uh, up the housing market there and, and, uh, and overall infrastructure so that the, uh, the, the demand for steel and the products that go into making an increase in China is by second quarter of next year. But I think it'll still—it's not going to be what we saw before.
0: But I think that's what everybody's hoping to see. Oh sure. You know, if you attend these these various panels, these these conferences, uh, looking at the dry bulk industry, uh, it, it felt like each quarter you could hear the ship owners kind of talking about China as if uh, wistfully. You know, I, I imagine any any week now it'll—you know—they'll turn that faucet back on. But it's been slow, uh, slow. You know, after the after the COVID restrictions and uh, slow opening back up these different steel
1: factories, so. Absolutely. I will say if you want to find optimists for that next quarter is going to be better, just need to call a ship owner. Someone <laughs> in turn, right? you will oh it is always gonna be better next quarter. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs>
0: I like that. Eternal optimist. Yeah. You know, it's uh, yeah. it's, a, yeah. it's a great way to be but, uh, but very good. So we we've talked a little bit about some of these different minor bulks, uh, some some grains, some thermal fuel. Um, I was curious if you had any kind of last thoughts, or if there was anything you you wanted the chance to share uh, during this time.
1: Um, maybe the last bit about China. I I do. Well, actually, I do know what I'd like to share. So okay. And this may be getting a little bit too inside baseball. A good indicator of things returning to a little bit of a a normal market, which in some ways is better for everyone because all parties can anticipate what they're going to be paying and what things are costing. When we had uh, the COVID restrictions and the flip-flop of the markets with containerized vessels and suddenly the Pacific was so expensive and a market could be at Nobody wanted to be in the Atlantic. So basically the front hall became the back hall and the back hall became the front hall. And then everything was a front hall. Everything was expensive. No matter what direction you were going, uh, it was, there was no discount. We have really seen that. It didn't flip back immediately, but it is definitely back to a more normal reliable market and the idea that, uh, You will ballast a dry bulk ship from the far east to the west coast to get cargo and you'll absorb that cost and then off of the west coast of all the Americas is a front haul and we're seeing that where before when we were contemplating that business you would just you would think of taking a vessel from the west coast that's already here and that's not happening anymore and I would say that's just that whole mindset. And I was talking to an owner that has over 300 ships yesterday, and they said as a company, they are now calculating, you know, English speaking a little bit globally, of course, everything is a little bit different, but sure. that they are back to thinking of the Pacific as the as the weaker market and the Atlantic as the stronger market and basing their calculations in the way that they're contemplating business back on how things were circa twenty nineteen. Interesting. So sure. I I would say that, that that bodes well for the commodity players as well as the owners to have a little bit more stability. I mean everyone wants some volatility in a market, but when it's it's that difficult when your clients, you know, when our trained clients who import into the Philippines are paying six times they ever have for uh, their wheat and three times for freight, it's untenable at a certain point. So having things calm down a bit and become more predictable, I think, and, and will be great for everybody and, and, you know, on the kitchen table as well, or when you go to buy a piece of furniture or a car. So, yeah, I
0: imagine there's, uh, I want to say, maybe maybe billions of people who, who are hoping for the same right now, for things to calm down a little bit, you know. So. Yeah,
1: exactly. And how dry bulk is the canary and the coal mine, and especially, I'd say, the minor bulkers, because we see things happening before they roll out. And, um, you know, the canary is, is still singing, and <laughs> I think it's, like, just more calm now. So uh, that will burn well for everyone.
0: Absolutely. Well, I want to thank you again very much, uh, Kelly. Thanks for, for talking with me today. I, I feel like I've learned a lot in the last uh, last 30 minutes or so here.
1: Awesome. Well, I really appreciate the opportunity, Rob.
0: It's been a real pleasure. Oh, Thank you again. Take care.